You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by words. I read in a book somewhere that reading the dictionary would make you smarter. So one day, I sat down to read it. Cover to cover. Pretty soon became apparent that the dictionary isn't the most compelling read. There's no narrative arc and the character development is absolutely shocking. Seeing as I couldn't quite manage to read the dictionary, I decided to write my own. I found a notebook where I would write down new words and their meanings. I never expected anything to come of it, but this habit accidentally stuck with me into my adult life and became a crucial part of my learning style. Now, when I hear a new word that resonates with me, I'll write it down in my notes on my phone. I'd like to think this process has contributed to a broader vocabulary, but at the very least, this habit has been surprisingly enjoyable. This week's stories are about the joys of learning for learning's sake. In our first story, Steve Towson and Vanessa Glenn talk about starting the Australian Cultural Library, which provided their community with a much needed space to share knowledge. And heads up, this story contains a reference to a historical publication from Aboriginal activist Jack Patton, and the title may offend some listeners. I'm amazed at the variety in them because I understand they were all sewn by the same person. There was one 90-year-old um, lady who, when I saw her looking at the dresses, it was like she was clearly in uh, bliss. In regional Queensland, the small town of Rosewood are reopening their town hall. A small room full of scones, tea and antique ball gowns. More than 70 of them, actually. An unusual exhibition. It's got locals talking. At present in the Rosewood community, there is a renewed interest in our history. So today we had an exhibition of vintage dresses, so ball gowns um, in town. This is Vanessa Glenn. It was, this was the first time that we have really reached out within the community here, within, to the Rosewood and, and surrounding areas. For locals, she's a new face. Most have seen her scurrying around the weird old Queenslander down on John Street, taking in what looks like hundreds of boxes for weeks at a time. But Vanessa isn't just moving into this house. What might come as a surprise to many is Vanessa's part of something called the Australian Cultural Library. Which I had heard of, but really not seen any of, of the exhibits that they have. But it's right here in Rosewood, and a lot of people don't even know that it's there. The Australian Cultural Library is going on 10 years, and it brings joy through rediscovery, connecting the new with the old. It's a bit different from your average library. Anyone walking past their converted Queenslander-style home wouldn't think twice. 
beyond the never-ending garden of chocos and basil, is a surprisingly polished shed, within which a world of discovery awaits. The Willy Wonka behind this treasure trove is a man committed to inclusivity. I'm Steve Towson, and I'm the president and director of the Australian Cultural Library. With a large tattoo of equality across Steve's forearm, he wears his values loud and proud. That kind of punk DIY element has, was one of the pretty much an ethos behind the library because when I started doing gigs and a lot of people I know, it was anyone at all would be welcome at a gig. Step inside the shed and all of a sudden you are transported. The interior looks like any other library, but with a few changes. Floor to ceiling, amazing Australian poetry, uh, novels. On the top, there's a Radio Birdman black t-shirt. Underneath it, there's a... The bookcases we've got here, they're made out of ceiling battens and melamine. Um, so very strong, but it's also a very practical way of um, being able to afford to make the amount of bookcases we need for the library, so... Roof-high bookshelves separated with just enough breathing space to browse in between stuffed full of books and records from entry to exit. A seemingly never-ending pool of donations to sort through, filling the cracks of the foyer. A project of this scale requires a passion unlike any other. But passion has steered Steve's life since birth. I think my family were really into music and the arts. Dad was, the ex, was in the Air Force, then became a visual arts lecturer at a uni. Um, so you see the practical side to, and the severities of the arts, not just the glitz and glamour. It's quite common and acceptable for people to take the piss out of someone from a regional area, for example, or from a poorer suburb in a capital city. But if you do tour, you get to see and experience amazing people. And then you realise that it doesn't really mean that much where someone's geographically located. So you get to understand that human beings are, you know, who they are not just a simple catchphrase or something you can take the piss out of. Steve and his team of diehard volunteers are building on local curiosity to rethink how we see Australia's cultural history. Well, the collection itself is anything made by someone born here or migrated, or if it's um, someone who might have done something like a cover of a song, so if someone's done a scar version of uh, Land Down Under by Men at Work then it shows respect for Australian culture. And it's anything arts, humanities. So music, poetry, uh, film, books, uh, VHS, yeah. The only things that, things that don't go on the shelf are things that are actually illegal, which makes sense. And if you had stuff donated, it is illegal? <laughs> no, fortunately. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't really want to have to deal with that. Hello, police officer. Give it time, give it time. Yeah. So, starting at the back of the hall, this is the western side of the uh, Thomas Rodriguez and Judith Shapcott Hall, which is named after um, Thomas Rodriguez and Judith Shapcott. No, the other way around. Thomas Shapcott and Judith Rodriguez. Whoops. Um, so, we have their personal... Peering down one row of the library, there are giant posters of former political candidates and parties sat next to... Pauline Hanson's maiden speech through to... You know, Bob Brown's autobiography. There is some hardcore stuff in here that I don't like, but that's my opinion and other people might like it. Hardcore stuff, such as publications from the Australian Native Society, a post-colonisation group focused on the rights of white males exclusively. These riddle the shelves. The publication Abo Call is um, pretty intense. When you look at the front cover, people will go, oh my God, you can't have that in the library. If you open it up, it was a 1935 publication made by Aboriginal people for 
35,000 Aboriginal people. On a desk in the library office sits a box of Passion Pop. I'm a short attempt. Like the foyer area where we're still we're about to put in some stairs. Stepping back into the outside world from the collection housed in a converted backyard shed, through the garden and into the house, a retro Queenslander bursting with older formats. Local artworks adorn the walls, including a local Toowoomba celebrity portrait. Thousands and thousands of biros. The photo was taken by Sean Humphreys, who's a library volunteer. A collection of instruments and old formats spill into the hallway. The team at the Cultural Library didn't exactly set out with the grand visions they now have for the library. Here's Vanessa again. One day I had this great idea. Let's start a library. Deep in the touring cycle and seeking resources, the idea came from an adaptation of DIY culture. Which I, in my mind, renamed a DIO, so doing it ourselves, a bit more mm. collective. I thought it would be good to be able to share resources and ideas and network and knowledge. At the core, it's a labour of love, grown from the shared interests of Steve and his partner Vanessa. The library started almost nine years ago. We had collected materials that was related to post-colonial Australian folk music and then went to local council libraries, state libraries and found that our collection was um, at least as significant and big as theirs. But right from the very first day, there was this, apparently this little old lady knocking on the door saying, I've got some things that you might be interested in. Do you, you know, would you like some donations? And, and that sort of kicked off this real passion that we've, we seem to have been able to link into in the community for some degree of community cultural preservation and an interest in, in the arts, of course. The library has stuck with its DIY ethos since the start operating exclusively with volunteers and without any formal funding. The team is made up of Steve. Myself as the director. With Vanessa assisting in the board of directors. Mm. Music is my hobby. Um, the library is my passion <laughs> the rest of the time. So Di, she is our sheets, sheet music curator. But I'm Diane Glenn. If there's no holes barred on culture, so many people can be interested and involved. Frankie, visual arts curator. Uh, my name's Frankie. I'm an artist. I think I started out of the womb. Ron, military history curator. Okay, I'm yeah. Ron, Ron Towson. I'm Steve's dad, amongst other things. With the values to collect, preserve, promote and house cultural works, the team at the Australian Cultural Library are focused on fighting hard against a culture determined to throw away the old and seemingly obsolete. Half the problem is if it's not easily accessible, people don't know it exists, so therefore, in their mind, nothing ever existed. But for me, the most important aspect is the, the preservation of, of things that might have otherwise been destroyed. It's almost anti-fascism in a way, you know. If you start judging what is or is not worthy of being on the shelf, then you could remove the book of poetry from Gainda that no one knows about except people from Gainda and all of a sudden someone doesn't have a nice pleasant memory of someone they cared about. Plus the poet can get, you know, easily forgotten. Accepting almost anything can open up the library to ridicule, but it's an open invitation for those offended by the collection to donate items they see as more appropriate. Steve and the team open up the possibility to look at a truer reflection of Australia's collective mind,
for all its distorted beauty and muddled sensitivities. We do mention to people that with the library we don't censor, so there, there is stuff that people will find offensive, but it has been created, so therefore it is integral in understanding how we are where we are now. By providing a space where anyone can go and be swept away by a memory, Steve and the team are also hoping to stop the alienation of the elderly feeling discarded by society. I've seen that a lot where people come in and they meet younger people and young kids get blown away by talking to some elderly people about what these older folks have experienced. And then you have elderly people going, oh, wow, that, those young kids are pretty amazing. Like The ephemeral nature of the exchange between people coming into the library and going, oh, that was my auntie that wrote that book or oh, my, my uncle's sister or, you know, that connection between the collection and just a random visitor in the library. As funding cuts in the arts continue to shut down venues, the new library space has become a free outlet for artists from all walks of life liberated from the ties of money. Here's Ron. Not everyone, regardless of abilities and things, get the opportunity to have their work out there, whether it be visual artists or writers or musicians. And you don't have to pay to, pay to you know, audiences of thousands. That's no measure of their worth. Um, sometimes I think that if we were to have a, a very simple mission statement, it would be around connecting people to, people to their culture. When you close your eyes and you think of home, you th perhaps you might think of your local landscape, the houses, the building, the built facility, but also the experiences that you have. That becomes, that's intrinsic then to you, your, your experience of life. So I guess um, to be able to have a place where things are brought together that might it reminds you of who you are, but also exposes you to all of the other cultures that are, that are around you is somehow quite important to us as a society. Finally reaching out to the community after months of construction, an exhibition of dresses from Dulcie Mason has been an opportune way for Steve and the team to connect to the Rosewood community. Stepping in to fundraise, for better security and air conditioning at the local Uniting Church. At the end of the day, you do what you can do with what you've got, which has always kind of been a heavily, heavy motto of the library. Like we, I think in total, the cost to set up this exhibition, if we just look at what has been purchased, I think there was three rolls of wire, four packs of coat hangers, maybe some ribbons, so you're looking at 20 to $30. So if that 20 or $30 investment, if five people came along and really felt something, that's definitely a good investment. I was noticing many of the familiar faces. So people that I see pictured in the local newspaper as being, um, I guess, pillars of the community in their own ways. That was um, probably a, a good thing for us as a community group as we're starting now to put the network out to develop connections here where we don't have close connections. At the end of the day, simple acts rippling through the community is exactly what the library is built on. The dress collection is only one of the many ways Steve and the team are committed to inclusivity. So for me personally, it reminds me of like when my mother was 16 and made her debut. And one of the ladies I spoke with this afternoon, same thing, you know, when she made her debut in, you know, 1960 something. Yeah. That, you know, her dress was just like this one, except that it had pleats instead of lace. And, and it's not the same old stories. It's never the same old story. Every one of those stories is unique in its own way. And the remembrance of it is, you know, unique as well. 
The Australian Cultural Library are bringing the punk ethos of acceptance and individuality to the library space. And I think it's for the better. Just a huge whack in the face of like, yes, your country does have culture. And yes, there are a lot of people in this country creating amazing things to contribute to it. At first, even though it was a lot smaller than what it is now, it was just uh, awe-inspiring, really. It's turned me much more into Australian art and culture than I had been. And I am so impressed. I'm finding wonderful things and just enjoying it so much. I can't believe the quality of some of the things and just awesome. Personally, I'm guilty of writing off the cultural output of our rural citizens, of painting certain spans of time as discriminatory or null. With so many historical narratives around the colonization of places now known as Gympie or Boona being ones of deep pain and anguish from theft, murder and otherwise, it's easy to write off years, places and faces as one shade of emotion. It's easy to forget the complexities. Yet through discovering the history of people such as Thomas Hall, thanks to stories from Steve, the Australian Cultural Library has opened my eyes to the complex relationships that can exist in Australia's shared colonial history. In the 1800s, an Aboriginal guy called Carlo, I think his name was, but he talked about how this guy would walk along with the, the folks from the Warwick region to go to the Bunya Mountains and he would write songs and dances and teach them to the tribe as they walked to the Bunya Mountains. And when they got there, they would teach everybody else at the Bunya Mountains. Through examining the collections of one another, we can come to understand each other in a way that starts a fresh page on the history of ourselves, who we are and what we want to be. With a growing collection of more than 40,000 books, VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, vinyl, cassette tape, DVD, piano roll, poster, letter, drawing and painting, if there was anyone who can shift our perception of what Australian culture truly is, it's Steve Towson and the team at the Australian Cultural Library. There's this idea that Australia's culture is waltzing Matilda related, which is far from the truth. It's so much more complicated and diverse than um, call cats, meat pies and waltzing Matilda. Like, that is a small part of it. It's way more complicated than people give it and diverse than people give it credit. That story was produced by Nick Huntington. MJ Bakewell was a supervising producer. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Mel talks to her nephew about a South Pacific island that he's captivated by, and the surprising things he's learned through his curiosity. Last summer, I spent some time on the coast with my family. My brother Matt was rushing to meet a deadline for the publication of his fourth children's book. My 10-year-old nephew, Miro, has his own little desk in my brother's studio space. He is often involved in Matt's creative projects, sitting in on meetings with designers and editors, 
taking notes and offering advice in his gentle, serious way. His aesthetic sense and attention to detail is incredible. But when I was up there last, Miro wasn't doing much collaborating. He was spending hours at his desk every day, engrossed in his own project that neither Matt nor anyone else in the family had anything to do with. He had been looking through this big old atlas from the 80s and had become obsessed with this tiny island in the central Pacific Ocean called Canton. He taught himself how to use InDesign and decided to write and illustrate a book about it. He even had a Zoom call with an Oxford professor. So, lacking my own creative project, I decided to turn on the microphone and interview him about it. It's a really small island and it's kind of like a a triangular shape with a road circumnavigating it. It's important to note that this interview was not premeditated. Almost every question I asked him he had an answer for straight off the bat. It's like a big ring of land, right? And then there's a lagoon in the middle of it. Correct. Which is a really unusual shape for an island, I suppose. Mm, not exactly. Lots no. of islands in the Pacific are atolls, which is that sort of shape, which are formed from volcanoes which sink into the ground and coral grows around. Ah. Wow, that's so interesting. I had never even knew what an atoll was before this. Mm, yeah. Neither did I until I discovered this island. Hmm. So, so Kiribati is the name of the archipelago? Is that what you would call it? Well, Kiribati is the country. Right. Then there's three groups. One's called the Phoenix Islands, one's called the Gilbert Islands, and the last one is the Lion Islands. And which one is Canton then? That one is in the Phoenix Islands. Well, actually, Canton is a colonial name. The um, residents of the island named it Abariringa. Ah, okay, right. What I love the most about his research is that it's so conscious. He makes important connections between small, obscure histories and wider political ideas. After we looked at the atlas, he opened up his laptop to show me his book. What events have you got on the timeline so far? So far I've only got two. Uh Uh-huh. Which is the Austronesian people inhabited the Kiribati Islands. 3000 BC to 1300 AD. Yes. So these are the first people that inhabited the islands. Yeah, Called Austronesian people. And then 1850 AD. The British laid claim on some of the Phoenix Islands. Okay. And I'm also working on a colonisation page. How the British went to New Zealand and tricked students into being colonisers, not telling them what the real point of colonising the atolls was, which was an army base (gasps) for staging attacks on the rest of Kiribati. So what, they pretended that it was like a research mission or something, did they? Mm, they I actually don't know. I haven't really done much research into this. Yeah, okay. But when when World War II reached the islands, Mm -hmm. they were told to evacuate and were told the true purpose. Really? So their army base wasn't successful. Yeah, right. It sounds like there's a really interesting story there, though. I'm excited to hear about it once you find out. Yeah. And has it got independence now? It has got independence to the country of Kiribati, but the original owners, the Ikiribati people, do not own it. 
After he'd given me a thorough half-hour rundown of Canton and Kiribati, I asked him if there was anything that we missed. Well, actually, I do have another thing I want to talk about, which is climate change. In 2030, it's predicted that some of the atolls and islands in Kiribati will be completely submerged, which is quite a quite tragic mm. because it's a really amazing place. There's so many reefs. It's like the only place which has still got such an abundance of fish and animals. Mm-hmm. But recently, the people have started to have to turn away from their from their diet of fish and start to get imported goods like ramen and Nutri-Grain and other really terrible sugary foods from Australia. Okay. Now, I know every auntie thinks their nephew is the best, but talking to Miro made me appreciate the joy of learning through the eyes of a child. And that way that research has of expanding ever outward and connecting you to time and space. More than that, though, his sensitivity, his awareness of colonialism and insistence on pushing the climate crisis onto the agenda of our interview just filled me with pride and hope. They would often let um, poaching boats into the area and let them just take away all of the white tip sharks, which are species of sharks that live in the area. Because th- these are a really amazing species. So they're, they're really tame, like you can... You can swim right up to them and they won't do a thing. Oh, so they're probably easy to catch too, right? If they're... They are, yeah. Oh, that's really sad. Mm. But are they protected now or are they, they are still being fished? Because most of them are in the Phoenix Islands. Okay. Which is now an illegal fishing place. Okay. Except for the inhabitants. Okay. Which are really careful with their fishing. Yeah. Because they know what's, what happens with the big trawl fishing. I stayed over Christmas, and without consulting one another, Miro's mum, dad and nana all ordered him special stamps from Kiribati as a present. I bought him a hammock. Perhaps I recognised the self-punitive work ethic of the Chun family rising up in him already, and I was hoping that he'd take a break. It's unlikely, though. That story was produced by Mel Chun, with sound design by Ben Cannings. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands, and 8CCC on Arunta and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers. Our web producer is Connor Hughes and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. 
You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.